Well, that was, of course, the introduction to The Prince of Egypt, uh, Spielberg's 93 uh, animated film about Moses. And it's funny, uh, I know it's animation, and I don't actually know if we've ever shown an animated clip that wasn't involved with like a children's service, so this might be new. Uh, and I was like, ah, do I show a cartoon? But I've got to be honest, when I was in 93, however old I was, as a teenager, I wasn't that impressed with this movie. I was kind of like, eh. But the older I've gotten, the more I really like it. And there's something about what can get conveyed with music that just doesn't happen the same way without it, right? And, and I wanted to actually show the entire introduction, but it was over eight minutes long, and this was a long enough clip as it was. But Spielberg does a masterful job of kind of weaving in the story of this people, the Israelite people who've been enslaved for 400 years, and they're longing to be delivered. And then you, you kind of see this extended scene with, with Moses in the basket floating down the river. And there's all of these circumstances that look like they're going to destroy him. But something happens that, again, in the, in the ancient Hebrew mindset, and I think for sure Spielberg was thinking this, while many of us could look at it and go like, oh, you know, lucky, the Hebrews never saw it that way. It was this sense of, of divine protection that God was actually protecting this child who had this really important role to play in the history of this nation, of this people. Well, we're starting a new series this week that we're calling Deliver Us, and we're looking at the life of Moses. Moses is one of the most iconic figures in all of history. Uh, in fact, not just in like the Christian faith, but in the three major world religions, uh, in um, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, Moses plays a central theme, a central role. He's, he's someone who is looked up to as the founder of the nation of Israel, the one who, who hands on the legal system that, that actually forms the foundation for many uh, developments in law and philosophy over the course of the millennia. He casts a long shadow on history. Even if you're not a particularly religious person, the contributions that Moses has made are felt all through, again, philosophy, law, religion. But we're going to look particularly at how Moses becomes Moses, how Moses is shaped. And today we're going to, we're going to start at the very beginning with his origins. Now, we love a good origin story. Uh, anybody who's into, like, comic books, I mean, particularly, this is a big thing now, right? Um, what, we look at these remarkable people, these people with powers that are amazing or, or who do significant things, and we ask, like, what creates someone like that? Like, what happens in the life of a person that they would have to be crazy enough to walk around in a bat suit with these crazy expensive gadgets and, like, fight evil people? Like, what happens to someone who does that? Or, or like, where, where does someone like a Black Widow or a Black Panther come from? Or, you know, what, what, what's Iron Man's deal? Like, we love kind of digging into that and, and hearing these stories about where these remarkable people come from. But it's not just in, uh, in fantasy. It's in real life, too. We're fascinated by the stories of people like, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or Sheryl Sandberg or Mark Zuckerberg. Um, you know, name your famous person. We love to hear... What are the elements that went into shaping this person to become the compelling figure that they are today? Even if we, we don't like them, we're fascinated by what events played a role in shaping them. And so we're going to take a little bit of time uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks 
and look at the, the elements that came together to shape Moses into the kind of person who God could use to deliver a people out of 400 years of slavery. So to begin, a, a little background, a little context, if you're not familiar with the story, um, we begin Moses' story with the book of Exodus. Um, now, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to, uh, to grab one. We have Bibles sitting on the back, uh, the countertop out in the foyer there. We'll have the scriptures up here that we're reading this morning. But I'd encourage you, um, whether you're familiar with the story or not, to follow along. There's, this is an incredible story. It's a remarkable story. It begins in um, Exodus chapter 1, and it is the story of the Exodus, of the, the leaving of the Israelite people. But Moses is the central character in this story. He's the one that God uses uh, as the catalyst for all of this. And so the story of Moses begins in the book of Exodus. It's the second book that you come to in the Old Testament. Um, And again, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to read along at home as we're going through this. If you don't, grab one before you leave. Take it as our gift to you and follow along. It's a fascinating story. Um, But again, a little background. So the Hebrews had come to the nation of Egypt during a famine, a time of famine. And they came, and there's a lot of miraculous kind of circumstances around what got them there and how God provided for them while they were there. But they ended up settling in Egypt, more or less as guests of the Egyptians, and the Egyptians cared for them. Now, while they were there, they started to grow, to, to flourish. They became a, a very sizable minority among the Egyptian people. And as a new leader came to power who didn't kind of know, I mean, kind of knew the backstory, but didn't have a personal connection there, this new leader became very suspicious of these foreigners who were living in their land. And so, He felt like the only way to make sure he had them under control was to enslave them. And so they began treating the Hebrews harshly. They enslaved them. And they began this process of uh, 400 years of slavery for the the Hebrew people. And what is kind of remarkable in this story, again, you, you see, even in the places where it's not overtly mentioned, you see God in this horrible situation working in the Hebrew people. We read in in chapter 1, verse 12, But the more they, the Hebrews, were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. So it's kind of this thing where where the people are are growing in number, and so the Egyptians are oppressing them more, and the more they oppress them, the more they grow, and the more their fear grows, and so they treat them harsher. I mean, it's just a cycle that's happening. So finally, in the process there, the the Pharaoh says, Okay, what we've got to do is we've just got got to nip this in the bud, he tells the midwives to start killing all of the boys. All of the, the boys as they're born, when they're born, you kind of kill them. Um, we'll just take care of it. And the midwives decide, nah, they're not going to do that. And, and Exodus tells us because they feared God. So these midwives choose not to obey the Pharaoh. So then plan B, the Pharaoh says, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to take all the newborn boys and we're going to throw them into the Nile. And thus begins the genocide of the Hebrew people. So it's in that context that we, enter, we get Moses' story. So that's Exodus 1. Again, that was a brief kind of run-through. encourage you to read it on your own. But we're going to start with Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 this morning. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. 
He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So you see this remarkable beginning of this man's journey, right? So he's, he's born into this environment where he's, he should be killed immediately. But instead, because of the courage of his mother, who at this point is unnamed, we later find out her name is Jochebed, um, Jochebed decides, and, and the scriptures tell us because she noticed there was something special about him. I think the version I read said she saw he was a fine child. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, says, um, how does he say? She saw that there was something special about him. She noticed that there was something different about this child. Now, you could say, if you are a mother, or for those of us who have mothers, we know that mothers tend to think that all of their children are special, right? And so we could simply say, well, you know, of course she thought he was special. She's a mom, right? That's what moms do. And, and that's, it's true, it's true. It's hard to imagine that the other Hebrew mothers didn't think their kids were special. But the point is, I think the author is trying to communicate there was something different about this child, something that led this mother to put herself at great risk to protect him for three months until she got to a place that she couldn't do it anymore. And so then she decides to put him in this basket of reeds in the Nile. Now, what's fascinating, kind of an aside, but it's, it's interesting, if, if you're familiar at all with some of the other biblical stories, there's a story of Noah that happens in Genesis, which is the book before this. Um, and you may have seen movies starring Russell, Russell Crowe, you know, the gladiator guy, like that, that, that story. Um, that, same, that word used for ark, this boat that rescued this family, is the same word used for the basket here. Only two places in the Bible it's used. It's kind of interesting. Um, so, so she takes the baby, puts him in this basket with pitch, and sets him in the river. Not really would have been my kind of first thought, but, but she goes with that. And, and she sticks him in there, and, and, right, and Miriam, his sister, who we later find out her name, don't hear it here, she kind of follows and watches. And there's this crazy thing that happens, right? The, the, the daughter of Pharaoh, which just so you know, I mean, Again, Spielberg, he says at the beginning of this movie, he takes a lot of license. Every movie takes license. It's cool. It makes the movie good. But the Pharaoh would have had a harem. There would have been a lot of daughters. They wouldn't necessarily been, I mean, they kind of would have been princesses, but it's not like there would have been this direct, like, oh, she's my daughter kind of a thing. They were actually not, they just didn't matter much to the Pharaoh. So there would have been a lot of these daughters of the Pharaoh who would have had babies and involved them in the court. So it wouldn't have been that difficult for this to happen kind of anonymously and innocuously. Um, but So you have this daughter of Pharaoh who discovers this and takes this baby as her own. And, and these are those coincidences where the, Hebrew, the Hebrews are saying, like, you see God at work here. You see God working, right? So just so happens that Miriam's there and she's like, hey, do you need a nurse for her? And she's like, yeah, go get me someone. I'll pay her. And so the mom actually gets to spend the first few years uh, nursing her own son and getting paid for it, which is pretty sweet. Um, so, so you see all through this beginning, this remarkable kind of set of events that is shaping Moses. 
But there's something really important that we learn because in our minds, when you think about Moses, I don't know, it, well, you probably don't often think about Moses, but if you ever think about Moses, most of the images we have are these like Charlton Heston, like on the mountaintop from the, you know, the 19, was that 50s, um, 60s version of, you know, this like strong, like solo man who like on his own with his staff led the people. And there's truth in that. But what's really clear in this story that we can't overlook is that Moses was not a self-made man. Moses did not do it all on his own. Now, we love the myth of the self-made man in America. We love it. We love this idea that if someone simply kind of works hard enough on their own, they can, just, they can make themselves a success. That it's, it's possible for anybody to succeed on their own. You really don't need anyone. All you need is hard work. And while certainly I don't think there are many people that it could be said accomplished much without hard work, hard work is critical, I'm not sure you could find anyone who, if pressed, couldn't identify a series of people who had a significant role in their development and where they are today. There is no such thing as a self-made person. I was reading an article in Forbes magazine by a guy named Mike Myatt, and he said it this way. I kind of liked it. He said, Behind every success are significant investments and contributions by some, if not all, of the following people. Family, friends, associates, protagonists, antagonists, advisors, teachers, authors, mentors, coaches, and the list could go on. Other than in a Rambo movie, which was a, was a good caveat, other than in a Rambo movie, there is no such thing as an army of one. Savvy leaders tend to seek out help wherever they can find it. Um, for our teenagers, if you don't know who Rambo is, it's all right. Ask an adult, they'll tell you later. Um, but for Moses, we see like early on, and again, in a culture that doesn't value women, we see a number of women, most prominently his mom, investing deeply in him, taking great risks to ensure that he's able to flourish, to survive, yes, but not only that, to get set up well for life. Risking greatly, sacrificing so that he could get what he needed to start life well. And for many of us, that's actually a familiar tale. That, that kind of sounds, that, that rings uh, true to us because that was your experience with your mom, your stepmom. That the, the late nights where you were puking your guts out and she sat there and rubbed your back. The, the, that time when you were so scared of the thunderstorm that you ran downstairs and like crawled into bed and she didn't sleep the rest of the night. Or that seven times that that happened. Um, that the, the many times she would come home from a long day of work, exhausted, and would immediately sit down to help you with your homework and make sure that she got dinner ready so that she could then run you to your sporting event. All the while trying her best not to yell at you that time or that thousand times. The way she supported you as you stumbled your way through college and first jobs and um, first loves and all of the things you experienced in life. The way she dealt with your, your misunderstanding as a teenager when you thought she was ridiculous and you yelled at her and she took it and might have punished you but she loved you. All of those, you, like, you remember those. 
That's part of your experience. That's part of what's shaped you. And so when you read about Moses' mom, that resonates. Like, yes, that matters. So it is, um, it is NBA playoff season, and so I, I continue to use basketball analogies. I apologize if you hate them. Um, yeah, I'm sure eventually we'll move into baseball maybe. Um, I don't know. This is an aside. Have you ever get kind of one of those texting threads where you're just like, why am I here? And, and you, I have this group of friends now who are regularly texting me about baseball goings on, and all I do is respond, Steph Curry, LeBron James, Skirmish, I don't know what you're saying. Um, so I don't understand, but I'm, I'm kind of in the basketball zone right now. Anyway, so Kevin Durant, uh, you may have heard of him. He, he kind of bursted onto the, the basketball se- scene in 2007 out of the University of Texas. A prolific scorer, won Rookie of the Year his first year. Um, back in 2014, won the uh, MVP for the NBA, uh, regular season MVP. And he has a, a fairly kind of famous um, speech where he accepts it. And he goes down this long list of thanking all of these people who kind of helped him get to where he was. And as he gets to the end, of course, he, he stops and he says, I, you know, finally I have to mention my mom. And I want to read to you what he says. And it's great. If, if you Google it, I mean, he's, he's crying. It's very emotional. You'll probably cry. It's good. Um, he says, and last, my mom, I don't think you know what you did. You had my brother when you were 18 years old. Three years later, I came out. The odds were stacked against a single parent with two boys by the time you were 21 years old. Everybody told us we weren't supposed to be here. We went from apartment to apartment by ourselves. One of the best memories I had was when we moved into our first apartment. No bed, no furniture, and we just sat in the living room and just hugged each other. We thought we made it. When something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. You wake up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sidelines of my games at eight or nine years old. We weren't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street. You put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You're the real MVP. Now, most of us are not going to win the regular season MVP for the NBA. However, all of us can look back with a sense of gratitude over the investment that was made in our lives. For many of us, the primary person who made that investment was our mom or our stepmom, the person who was there day in and day out. She is a big reason why we are who we are, a tool that God used to shape us. Now, granted, it's worth saying that for all of us, that wasn't mom. For some of us, for whatever reason, another person played that role in our lives. Maybe it was that tragically mom passed way too soon. Or, you know, during the divorce, dad got custody and most of your time was spent with him. Maybe, maybe mom wasn't doing well and couldn't really focus on anybody's needs but her own. And so you were kind of left floating a bit, having to tend to yourself. But even if that's the case, and and those are difficult circumstances, I would suggest that there are probably people you can identify 
that were still critical in shaping you. Whether that was, again, a grandparent, you know, your dad, an uncle, an aunt. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe a, a youth leader. Somebody who came alongside of you, who believed in you, who walked with you, who encouraged you, who smacked you upside the head when you were doing stupid things. That person was a gift to shape you because you weren't made to be a self-made person. And when you look at Moses' life, as you go kind of through the story, it wasn't just his mom. You know, there were all sorts of people involved. There was his father-in-law, who we'll come to later. There was, there was the, the guy he was mentoring, Joshua. There was his wife, his sister, of course, his brother, all of these other people that were critical in his development and shaping him into who he was. He couldn't have been the person who led Israel to freedom if it wasn't for the people who were in his life. Because God rarely, if ever, makes people in isolation. Not that isolation can't be a helpful tool at times, but that is not the primary place where God forges people. It's in the context of relationships that people are made. It's in community. That's why when when Jesus rose from the dead and and sent out his followers into the world, he didn't kind of like send them them out individually on these kind of like uh, separate missions, right? He sent them out together. And what did they do when they got to places? They created communities. We, We call them now churches. But he pulled people together who together would learn what it meant to follow Jesus. Not individuals, but communities, people, because it's in those communities that God is shaping these people. This is why in one of the, the early letters to, to these communities, to these churches, it's, it's the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It's kind of toward the end. The writer of Hebrews writes to this group of people, and he says this in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 to 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching critical to how the the author knew people were going to be shaped, how they were able to hold on to hope, was to not give up meeting together. To be in community with other people who were together learning to walk in the way of Jesus. Because it's in that context that God shapes us. It's in those, and through those relationships that God shapes us into the people we were created to be. So if we want to grow, if we want to continue on this journey of growth spiritually, Emotionally, we need to do a couple of things. Uh, some suggestions. There, there's four different things. I know four is a lot to hang, off, hang on to, but I want to throw them out there. Four things to think about. The first thing we need to do is we need to learn to ask for help. Um, if it's true that we are shaped by the people around us, then it's also true that we can't receive what God wants to do in us through the people around us unless we're willing to say help, unless we're willing to ask people to help us. And that's really difficult. Uh, It's difficult for different reasons for all of us, and and to kind of broadly kind of generalize, uh, for women, it's often difficult to ask for help because you are expected to be able to do everything with grace and poise and look awesome doing it, right? And so to say, I'm not sure I can handle this is kind of like, like, oh, I'm not, I'm not woman enough. Like, I'm just not able to figure this out. And everybody else can, at least according to Facebook, but I can't, right? Um, And so for women, there's this expectation that I can keep all these balls in the air uh, while I'm doing my makeup. 
for men, it's, the assumption is, like, I've got this, con- I, I, I have control, right? Like, I, I've got control of this. This is not too big for me. I can handle it. And the moment we have to say, I'm not sure I can handle it, we feel like we have to, what, hand in a man card, right? Like, I, I, like I'm not sure I can handle this, this chaos that is my life. That feels too raw, too, too vulnerable for most men to say. But if we're not able to ask for help, we won't be able to grow. It's just not going to happen. If we can't acknowledge our shortcomings, we're not going to be able to move through them or pass them. One of the interesting things we learned about Moses, somebody who we're told who, who knew God face to face, who according to the scriptures probably knew God better than anyone save Jesus. Okay, like there, there are these stories of him like seeing God and he walks away and he's got, like he just sees God's back because if he saw God's face it would kill him and he walks away and his face is glowing. It's like this crazy story about how closely he related to the creator. And so this is, this is Moses. If anybody should feel a little okay about himself, you would think it was Moses. And yet we hear this about him later in, in like the fourth book of the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 3. We hear, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Despite all of the remarkable achievements, Moses somehow managed to recognize that he needed help. That it wasn't all about him. He wasn't a self-made man who could just pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Which, funny thing, just again, an aside, do you realize that statement initially um, meant to, uh, to refer to an exercise in futility? Like, if you think about the act of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, it's impossible. Like, you can't literally pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You just can't do it. And so that phrase originally meant to try something that's futile, that you can't do. And somehow, over the years, we made it say, like, oh, this is what everyone should do. Like, I don't know. But it's, yeah. So, um, to, to quote the uh, famous, you know, Stephen Colbert, I believe you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I've seen it done. I was at Cirque du Soleil one time. It was amazing. Um, so, you can do with that what you will. Um, but, so all of us, no matter where we're at, we need to learn to ask for help. Whether you're a teenager who's convinced you know everything, um, y- you need to learn to ask for help. If you're 20-something, uh, trying to get things started, maybe still living at home, trying to find a, a place on your own, learn to ask for help. Um, 30-year-old, starting your career, 50-something, looking toward retirement, or a 70-something, looking back and wondering what your legacy is. No matter where we're at in our journey, all of us, need to learn to ask for help. Again, hard work is important. Do what you know to do and do it well. But when you come to the end of yourself, be honest, be open, invite others in. That's how we change. So that's one. Two, uh, we need to spend time with people who are in different stages of life than we are. Uh, one of the things that happens all the time, and it, it's just normal people stuff, like we tend to hang out with people who are like us, who enjoy the same things that we like, um, they do what we do. They have, maybe they have kids the same age as our kids. Uh, they're in similar kinds of employment or whatever it is. And that's natural and that's normal and it's good. But that can't be the end of our relationships. Uh, w- Tracy and I actually are part of a community group that meets that is largely people who are kind of 50 and north. Not everyone, but, but mostly. And it has been a huge blessing to us to be in this room of people 
who just have a world of different experiences and to listen to them talk about life and faith and how all of that works together and the ways that they've changed and, and the challenges that they've faced. It's been amazing. We walk home from that, we're like, oh, that's so cool. It's so great to sit there and listen. And we need those situations in our life. We need those relationships in our lives, people who are at different stages. Um, and, and for many of us, especially those of us who are in our 20s and 30s, we need people who've been on the journey a little longer who we can walk with. So get around people who are in different stages of life. Um, number three, consider where you might have an opportunity to invest in others. One of the things, uh, again, at Next Steps, we talked a lot about uh, the financial aspect, but the other piece that we talked about was the opportunity for engagement. And a lot of you are, are really connected here. You volunteer. You're connected relationally. That's great. But many of us don't think that we really have much to offer other people. But the truth is, all of us have something to offer. And particularly, you know, there's a lot of people here who've had a lot of experience in journeying with Christ, in, in living life. Some of you have had really difficult experiences that have shaped you and formed you in the way that you view the world. And we need you to invest in us, to help us navigate life. We need you to. And so it's going to take courage. It's going to take your willingness to go, oh, I think I have something to offer. But to look around and say, I could put an arm around that person. I, I could take that person out for coffee. We could meet, we could, we could read this book together, whatever it is, but to intentionally choose to begin to invest in someone else, to see part of your role as a, an instrument that God might use to shape someone else. And finally, today is, of course, Mother's Day. I would invite you to take some real time today to reflect on those people who have invested in you and shaped you. For many of us, it's our mom, our biological mom, but for some of us, it may not be our biological mom. Again, it could, it could be a, a stepmom, it could be a grandmother, wh- whoever this, this woman is in our life. And maybe for some of us, there's not a key woman figure, maybe it's a man. But whoever it is, to take some time today to reflect on the ways that they've invested in you and to figure out a way to communicate thanks. Maybe it's a phone call, maybe it's a note, maybe it's some flowers, a dinner, whatever it is. We need to stop and be thankful for the, the people that God has used to shape us into who we are today. And they haven't done it perfectly, of course. Of course not. You don't get handbooks for these things. But they have done it with love. And there's a lot for us to receive with gratitude.